Um, Paul penned a letter to the Philippians from prison. And it's one of those letters that we call the prison epistles. And uh, he was restricted from what, have, what, what would have ordinarily been ordinary activities or normal activities. In this situation, he likely reflected much on his ministry over the years. What he had accomplished, what God enabled him and, and gifted him and, and, and enabled him to do. In writing to this church, he certainly wanted to thank them for the generous gift they had sent. And this is the Philippian church. In writing to this church, he certainly wanted to thank them, but he also wanted to curtail any building dissension by urging the kind of humble unity that helps us look at others, helps us look at the needs of others. And so humility is a character trait that many people equate with weakness. Whenever we exhibit humility, people look at you as being weak. They wrongly equate humility with being a doormat. How many times have we heard people talk about being used as a doormat or being passive and totally pliable? For many, the idea of being humble encourages others to be domineering or dictatorial. Thankfully, the book of Philippians paints a far better picture of humility, and it points us to Jesus to see just how humility is to be carried out. So if we want to know what humility is like, then we need to look to who? Jesus. He is the example, or you might want to call it the, the template of humility that we are to look at. And so the importance of humility is highlighted in the passage that we have today. If you turn your Bibles to second to Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two. Verses one to five. And verses thirteen to fifteen. So if we can have someone read uh, the first five verses, and then somebody else can read from verse 13 to 15. Is there any encouragement for being to Christ, belonging to Christ? Any comfort from His love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing for and happening with each other. Love one another and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude in Christ Jesus. Had. Okay, someone else read from verse, 5, from verse 13 to 15. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holy fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the okay, you can stop right there. Yeah, 15. Okay, 15. Okay, when was the last time you wanted to be first in line anywhere? <laughs> we always want to be first in line. I went to the pharmacy last evening, and um, 
I went, there were two lines and they were long in Lowell's Pharmacy in the Southwest Plaza. And so uh, I went to, you know, you always want to go on the shortest line. So I went to the short line and uh, unfortunately, even though the line was short, the lady in the front had a check. Okay, and, and, and she had a check uh, to there to go to the call that in and all that sort of stuff. And then the other fellow came up and, uh, and he had this big bag of box of pampers and uh, and he pulled out three bags of coins okay. <laughs> and the guy behind me was saying what, what's taking so long and I said boy yeah we just gotta be long this guy just pulled out three bags of coins you know fortunately though the lady didn't count them she took his word that the amount of coins were in the bag but it was a long time on that short line but we always want to be first in line don't we I was at BTC this week and uh, waiting to get served, and this lady came and she was sitting on the side of me, and then these other people came in. So people, apparently they came in after us, and, and they got served before us, and so the lady looked at me and says, do you think we're invisible? And we were there first. But we always want to be first in line, don't we? The point on our sheet says, humbly place the needs of others before your own. That's the point of the lesson today. Humbly place humbly place the needs of others before you. Now that's not a natural inclination because naturally we want to be first, right? We don't normally think about others' needs before our own. We want to be first. So the, the, the point of the lesson today is humbly place the needs of others before your own. The Bible meets world says, I get amused when I see the news stories about people who camp out overnight to purchase the latest phone, tablet, or other gadget. Know anybody like that? <laughs> On the other hand, I am saddened when I see the reports of people pushing, shoving, and even exchanging blows at the first, to be first in the store for Black Friday sales over Thanksgiving weekend. We see stories on the, on the news about that, right? The difference between the two situations is selfishness. Having a desire for someone for something isn't necessarily wrong. But when I push and shove to get it at the expense of others, I've placed myself first. And I've likely damaged my relationships. In the book of Philippians, we learn of a better way. Paul contended that we are called to be first in line for one thing. Looking out for the needs of others. And when we do that, when we put the needs of others even before our own needs, we get the great benefit of strong relationships. Strong relationships. And so, since hum humility is a valued commodity in today's culture, we need to prayerfully ask God's Spirit to grant us wisdom as we study the scriptures, as we look at what God has to say today about being humble, about humility. And so as we go to the study today, we want to ask you to be prayerful that God would teach us what humility really means and how we can apply it to our lives and our circumstances and situations. Because when you get in line at a store and you and Ari and you get some place to go, you know, you, the last thing on your mind is one to put out this verse. You're thinking about yourself. What I need to get done, what I need to do. Forget about others. Okay, let's look at the passage, a couple of verses again. So, verse 1, Philippians 2, 
So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. You've already got the joy. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. So Paul's appeal at the end of Ephesians, end of Philippians 1, uh, he tries to explain what he means when he says, if then. The words if then in verse 1 probably connects Paul's appeal for unity in verses 1, verse 27, where Paul expresses desire that his friends work side by side for the gospel. Side by side for the gospel. Paul pointed out four realities of the Christian life as grounds of his appeal, each beginning with the word if. See that word if in the passage? If there is, does not convey doubt, but has the sense of because there is. So you could replace if with because. Instead of if there is, you can say because there is. And that's the point that Paul is trying to make. The Greek construction expresses certainty. Because believers had significant realities in common, they should be unified. Because we have significant uh, realities in common, we should be unified, shouldn't we? I mean, if we have all the, uh, certain things in common, why can't we be unified? The next question then is, what circumstances in life tempt you to ignore the instructions in these verses? What circumstances in life tempts you to ignore the instructions that Paul gives in these verses? Besides you and Ari, and you don't want to stand in line. Besides that, what other, what other circumstances tempt you to, to ignore the instructions that Paul gives here? If you don't like someone, you don't want the best for that person. Okay, if the person has wronged you or they offended you, the last thing you're going to want for them is good, right? You're, going, you, you're thinking getting even. You, you're thinking, I don't get mad, I get even. And if something bad happens to them, in our culture, we say that's good for you. <laughs> right? I mean, really, we mean it's bad, but it's bad for them, but we say it's good for them. When actually we're meaning it's good for us that the bad thing happened to them. Okay? And so that's one of the things that, uh, that tempts us to want to ignore the instructions that people... In other words, you know, you hurt me, you, I, you, I want you to get hurt too. I want you to get hurt just as much as you hurt me by what you did. And the word here we need to look at is tempt. Because God doesn't tempt, does he? Yeah. Who tempts? Satan. So whenever you are tempted in any way, you know that who's behind it, right? Yeah. We know who's behind it. And so we need to, to focus on the fact that we are to treat others better in order to demonstrate humility. Okay, another uh, insert from a guide. Sharing isn't something that comes naturally to us. Two toddlers can be content to let a ball rest in the corner 
Many of you have seen this. But as soon as one wants to play with it, the other claims it. Ever saw that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Even for adults, relationships often grow into a mess because those involved behave like self-centered, me-focused toddlers. It's mine. <clears throat> you know, they don't want they weren't playing with it all along, but as soon as the other kid got got it, it's all, all, all of a sudden it's theirs. Paul challenged the church at Philippi to strive for a new level of maturity in relationships. He encountered believers to, in his words, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's verse 2. In other words, what he is saying is live in harmony. Unity among Christians pleases God. And don't we want to please God? We want to make God happy, right? And so, unity among Christians pleases God just as well as a well-rehearsed song becomes music to our ears. If your church is like most, the members will not agree on every line item in the annual budget. But you can still agree to stay together work together, pray together, and serve together. You can choose to push your differences aside and interact with one another with affection and sympathy. Paul emphasizes on Paul's emphasis on unity and openness with Christ feels warm and inviting. But in verses 3 and 4, he spelled out the challenges of living that way. He stated this truth both in negative and positive terms. Negatively, he instructed us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, and to avoid looking, and to avoid looking out for only your own interests. On the positive side, Paul instructed everyone to practice humility. Count others more significant than yourself, and look out for the interests of others. In other words, be concerned more with the interests of others rather than me, 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 me all the time. And then the last point he makes here in this, uh, is Paul wasn't suggesting that you ignore your own needs or stifle your own interests. It's good to tend to your dreams and responsibilities. Just don't do it to the exclusion of others or at their expense. Work to meet the needs of others in addition to your own. In other words, when you're thinking about your own interests, also think about the interests of somebody else. You know, we've often, uh, our members have often been encouraged with regards to uh, Operation Inasmuch. When you go to the grocery store and you pick up a can of soup for yourself, pick up one for Operation Inasmuch as well. Okay, we've often been encouraged along those lines. And Paul is saying similar things here. Okay, when we think about our own needs, if I have a concern or a need for something, then think not only myself, but probably somebody else have this need too. Let me get one for them. Is what we do, or what we think, or how we ought to think in terms of practically applying humility. Okay, next question. How do we balance our responsibility to ourselves and others? How do we balance our responsibility toward ourselves and others? Any thoughts? Take care of ourselves first. Hmm? What we need to do. 
Right, we, we put ourselves first. We mentioned that. Uh, we don't think of others. We, we are me-focused most of the time. And that comes from the Adamic nature, which has not been eradicated. We still have to deal with that. Until Jesus comes and takes us to heaven, we're still going to have to deal with what our grandparents gave us, Adam and Eve, the me. When God approached Adam and asked him about his sin, did he take responsibility for it? He was me-focused. It wasn't me. It was that woman. It wasn't me. It wasn't my fault. It was that woman you gave me. Not only did he blame Eve, but he also blamed God. Me-focused. And so we balance our responsibility to others by focusing on others first. Not only ourselves. Okay, so Paul introduced humility in verses 1 to 4. And he, did, he, did, he delivered a, a startling challenge and command in verse 5. Look at verse 5. What does verse 5 say? You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus has. Okay, so that's a change in attitude he's asking us to take on. Okay, we normally have our own attitudes. We have our, our minds are set. You know, we are focused on what we want to do. Paul says, no, that got to change. If you want to practice and demonstrate humility, that has to change. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Notice, in verse 6, Paul emphasized Christ's deity. The phrase, form of God, does not mean Christ merely was like God. The term form was the idea of the expression of essential attributes or characteristics and stresses the reality of Christ's deity. In nature, essence, and being, he was and is God. Today we understand what God is like. We need to look to Jesus. Even though Christ is, is deity, he did not think of his equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. In other words, he didn't take advantage of his situation. In other words, he refused to use his deity selfishly. All about himself. He could have retained all of the prerogatives of his, of his deity, but he chose not to do so. Rather than holding on tightly to the prerogatives of his deity, Christ emptied himself. And as a hymn writer it says, he emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. The Greek word used here means to waive one's prerogatives or rights to something, to humble oneself, to set aside a worthy reputation. Jesus chose to follow God's will, not his will. And we see this throughout his life. When he, in his, in the, throughout his ministry, he often said, I came not to do my will, but the will of the Father, the one who sent me. We see that throughout his lifetime. To leave heaven, to lay aside the glory of God, and to take on our humanity. His emptying himself is closely related to his choosing to become a servant. He fully retained his deity, but he chose to limit his glory. He retained his deity, but he limited his glory. And even though Christ was deity in human flesh, Verse 8 tells us he humbled himself. He humbled himself. In other words, he was God, but he didn't throw his weight around. He wasn't pushy. Again, instead of trading his deity, he chose to become obedient to the Father's will. The Gospels emphasize that Christ consistently obeyed the Father. 
Instead of claiming an elevated status among his people, he chose the path of self-sacrifice. As the servants and disciples, the same should be true of each and every single one of us. That's the posture, the position that we should all take. Choosing to serve one another. One pastor says, that, says by love, serve one another. We looked at that last week in our lesson. By love, serve one another. In terms of being one and in unity with others. Okay, we have another uh, paragraph I need to read here uh, that you would have seen if you had the right copy. Paul challenged, I, I, I read, quote, Paul challenged believers to learn what humility looks like by remembering Jesus. That shouldn't be too hard for us to do, should it? Amen. I continue. Christ provides a perfect sacrifice for our sins, and he offers a perfect model for navigating our way through personal relationships. Have this mind in yourselves, which is all which is yours in Christ Jesus. In the movie Groundhog Day, anybody saw that movie? Okay, so you can identify with what it said here. In, that, in, the, in the movie Groundhog Day, weatherman Phil Connors gets caught up in a time warp on the worst day of his life. After begrudgingly traveling to Puxatawney's Pennsylvania to cover the annual Groundhog festivities, Phil can't wait to finish the ridiculous story and leave. But when he wakes up the next morning, he's stuck in February 2nd again and forced to relive the day's events day after day. Fortunately, Phil's experiences created a seismic shift in his attitude. He chooses to seize the day and shower the townspeople with his affection. He befriends and helps people, helps everyone in the town. Everything in his world changes as he changes. Phil learns the value of serving others and consequently he positively impacts his relationships. Jesus is, far, is a far greater example than some fictional character in a movie. In fact, he is the quintessential example. In verses 6 to 11, we see how he shows us how Jesus perfectly demonstrated humility and provided us the ultimate service. He died for us to bring us to God. Jesus is completely God, but he humbly emptied himself of the glory and privileges that are rightfully his. When people are full of themselves, they leave no room for others. Their opinions are the cleverest and their experiences are the richest. Jesus' example calls us to empty our egos and put others first. This is the essence of submission. Don't buy into the lie that greatness comes only when an ever-growing number of people know your name. Kill this attitude before it kills your connection with others. End of quote. Some highlights from that, that passage that we need to keep in mind. Well, the first one is Paul challenged believers to learn what humility looks like by remembering Jesus. Christ provided a perfect sacrifice for our sins and he offers a perfect model for navigating our way through personal relationships. Notice, remember that. He offers a model 
for navigating our way through personal relationships. And we know what navigating means, right? We do it every day when you get behind the wheel of a vehicle. Okay, you've got to navigate your way behind between traffic and bad drivers. And You know what I often pray for you for? This is what I pray for the incredible body of Christ every day. Traveling mercies. That we would have discretion and wise judgment as we drive. And that God would keep us out of the path of careless and reckless drivers. And that we would exercise judgment that we don't be the reckless drivers. Getting in the path of others. And that's what I pray for the incredible body of Christ every day. And so this is one of the things that we do. We navigate our way through personal relationships by using Jesus' perfect model as our example. The second point he makes, verses 6 to 11, shows how Jesus perfectly demonstrated humility and provided us an ultimate service. He died for us to bring us to God. And then the third point you want to highlight is when people are full of themselves, they leave no room for others. So if you are full of yourselves, then there's no room for other people in your life. You are what the Bible calls and what many people call selfish rather than selfless. Their opinions are the cleverest and their experiences are the richest. Ever gone to a conversation with someone where they all want to do all the talking about what they went through and what they experienced and, and they never let you get a word inside base? That's the kind of people he's talking about here. Their opinions are the cleverest. Nothing you can say is better than what they have to say. And their experiences are the richest. Jesus' example calls us to empty our egos and to put others first. Some people don't think they have an ego. But when you start focusing on all about me, 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 then you realize that you do have an ego. This is the absence of submission. The next question. How have you seen relationships strengthen through acts of humility? Have you had an experience where you behave or you demonstrated humility towards someone else and you saw your relationships strengthened and enhanced and bloomed and blossomed? Anybody? person was impacted by your act of humility toward them. And it actually changed the whole relationship. Put the relationship on a different page. That's what can happen. I'm sure some of us have had some experiences like that. Okay. Um, moving on quickly. we got a few more minutes left. Uh, next verses. Uh, someone read verses 13 to 15. For God is working in you, giving you desire and power to do what pleases Him. Do everything without complaining and arguing, so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in the inner world, full of crooked and perverse people. Born far. That's it? Yeah, uh huh. Okay, that's it. Now notice, it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for His God's pleasure. So God's doing His part. How are we doing ours? God is willing, working in you to will and to do His good pleasure. In other words, God's pushing. He's doing His part. What needs to be happening now is that we do our part. Okay, from the, from the um, personal guide I read as follows. 
do all things without grumbling or disputing. Is that even possible? Yes, it is. Jesus lived that way. And he expects us to follow his example. By the power of his spirit, we can live without grumbling and arguing or griping and raging. But doing so means we must, take, we must make the choice to remove all whining from our world. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor who had a prolific writing career. He became world famous for his role in the first great awakening of the 1700s. After 23 years of serving his church, however, his flock fired him. While being badgered and backstabbed, the people of the town paid close attention to his demeanor. As they observed his actions and attitudes, one man said, I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week, but he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. End of quote. Edwards found what Paul had found, a joy that soars above the ups and downs of life. Like an airplane that flies above the turbulence, we can fly above our stormy circumstances. Our joy can be replaced beyond the reach of our enemies. Paul was showing us how to shine like lights in the world, according to verse 15. The world is brimming over with whiners, haters, critics, and cynics. Isn't that so? We see it every single day. If someone isn't whining, they're expressing hate, or they're criticizing, or they're being cynical. Let's, let, let's be the breath of fresh air in our culture. It's so desperately longing for. Let's be the breath of air our culture is so desperately longing for. How? By being convinced that God is up to something great in our lives. I'm not talking about blind optimism, but rather living in the reality of what God is doing. And verse 13 is quoted again, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. When you start taking Paul's words seriously, your relationships will be affected. People will discover that you've stumbled upon a treasure they desperately long to find. Inner peace and joy. End of quote. The next question. How can our class serve as a cafe place for honest conversation in the light of these verses? How can we as a class serve as a cafe for honest conversation in the light of these verses? Your thoughts? Can we serve as an honest cafe? Be concerned for one another. Be concerned for one another. Enter in, in their hurt. Enter into their hurt. Okay. Shays are his burdens. Okay. Be an encourager. Be an encourager. Okay. All of those are good steps in the right direction. Paul wanted the believers to be blameless, without defect, beyond reproach or criticism. That's, that was Paul's desire for the saints. 
But all of this comes to us we get into the Word. The more we get into the Word and behold Him, then we are changed from glory to glory. And that is important because sometimes we read the Word. That's true. Sometimes we read the Word and get up and forget what we read. Not every now and then. Every day. Paul commanded that our behavior be pure. In other words, innocent concerning evil sincere in motives. In light of their submission to one another, one another and Christ, Paul piled up terms to emphasize the character believers were to save, were to, were to have as children of God. The character Paul spoke of here is quite striking when we've been viewed against the spiritual backdrop that he mentions. The spiritual backdrop he mentions is what we are concerned about, what we talk about, what pains us crooked and perverse generation. That's the backdrop. And how many times are we concerned about that? Okay. We talk about it in politics. We talk about it in government. We talk about it in the, uh, the civil service where if you don't, what they say, grease someone's palm, you can't get anything done. Okay. You already paid the appropriate fees. But instead of getting what you, what you paid for, you still got to dig your hand in your pocket and, and pull out an extra few dollars to just to get what you've already paid for. Okay, this is the backdrop that he talks about. A crooked and perverted generation. And that's not going to change until Jesus comes. So we've got to live with that. But in living with that, we need to, we need to be, have the character that Paul spoke about and be the alternative in a crooked and perverse generation. Don't fall in line. Or what the kind of people say, jump in the lines? Don't do that. Okay? Be different. Believers who embrace the example of Christ, embrace the example that Christ set, will contrast themselves in this dark world. And that is going to cause you to be hated. It's going to cause you to be criticized because they're going to look at you and say, oh, you think you're better than me? Because you are shining as God's light in the world. So expect that. It's going to happen if you decided to be what God wants you to be. To be crooked and perverted as a generation carries with it the connotation of an intentional misunderstanding of God's word and standards. The word generation referred to believers, to the believers' hostile pagan environment, which is what we can't get away from. In the spiritual darkness of a sphere ruled by evil, that is the world, the Philippian believers shown like or were seen as stars. And that's what God, you know, a lot of people in Hollywood want to be stars. God's telling us right here how we can be stars. By being what God wants us to be. And he says, when you do so, you're going you're gonna to shine like stars in a dark world. A crooked and perverse generation. And we see it all the time. Don't fall in line. Dare to be different. We used to say some years ago, dare to be a Daniel. Okay, let's live it out now. Three points that we normally have at the end of the lesson, uh, steps that we can take uh, in order to prioritize humility in the coming weeks and, 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 and apply appropriate application to this, to this lesson. 
a small step. Intentionally park in the worst space in the church parking lot next Sunday. I don't know what that is. <laughs> or come early and set up the room for your next small group meeting. Okay, that's step one. To encourage humility. Step two, a medium step. The first one is a small step, this next one is a medium step. Volunteer with your church's homeless ministry and treat those you serve with respect. For us, that would probably be care kitchen. If your church doesn't have a homeless ministry, find a practical way to help the widows and orphans in your community. Okay, we have those kinds of ministries, so you can plug into any one of those. And then that's the first, a small step, medium step, and here's the large step. Talk with your church staff and commit to helping a family or individual with large financial needs and do it anonymously. Now, we have a lot of people who do that in Calgary. You don't hear about it because it's anonymous. Okay, it's anonymous. We often hear of needs. And uh, being on the deacon's board, we get it all the time. We, we, we hear of a need and someone comes forward and say, you know, I, am, I, I, I want this, I'm here to present a check for that particular need, but I don't want anybody to know about it. Okay? There was a need one time for $11,000. Didn't know how it was going to be, it was due the next day. Someone walked in the office and said, here's $10,000 toward that. So it happens all the time. We just don't hear about it because it's anonymous. And so he says, the last step is, do so meet a large financial need or doesn't have to be it could be a significant need but do it anonymously so those are three steps small step medium step large step something that we can apply take and apply this lesson during the course of the week amen let the holy spirit of god guide you he's the one that will do the guidance you just follow amen amen, amen.